Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The reading is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God. One of the great unknowns of any Bible teacher is, is anybody tracking with you? Is anybody enjoying this book of Hebrews like you are? So if I was a college professor, I'd give you a pop quiz or a test, but I can't do that here, so I don't really know where everybody is, and it bothers me. I want to know. So this is a wonderful book. It is a deep book. It's the deep end of the pool for the New Testament. Uh, I love that verse there, verse 15, where he says the Holy Spirit said, and then he quotes the Old Testament. So the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible, and there's all these rich and great nuggets in the book of Hebrews, so I challenge you to read it, pick up a commentary. William Lane, who has written one of the great commentaries on Hebrews, believed this is a sermon that was preached in the early church, and if it was, this wasn't three points, 35 minutes, let's go to Chipotle, right? I mean, this, this is weighty, this is... This is stuff you hung around and talked about. And if it is a sermon, and maybe it is, I'm not sure, uh, every sermon needs background information. He's certainly given us that, talking about the tabernacle and the priest and such things like that. Uh, he's given us the history. We, we have all that here. But no sermon is really a sermon without application, unless the sheep can eat from it. If they know how to go back and apply it to their lives, you really haven't done your job as a preacher. Well, this preacher has done his job because in verse 22, here on the 4th of July weekend, we get the application. Because Jesus is greater than the angels and the law and the tabernacle and the temple, it says we, all those who would ever follow Jesus Christ, now enter in through what he calls a new and a living way, and we can draw near to God. Drawing near to God was the privilege of one man once a year in the Old Testament, in the dead way, bringing dead sacrifices. The high priest would go in once a year and offer blood for the sins of the nation. 
It's a very exclusive group, don't you think? Uh, think about exclusive groups, 100 senators. That's a very exclusive group. 32 NFL starting quarterbacks, nine Supreme Court justices. Those are some groups that are hard to penetrate. Imagine being the high priest in Israel. This guy was like a rock star, right? You'd see him walking down the street and say, there's the guy who gets to go in. The Ark of the Covenant, man, he, the presence of God. This is the guy that knows what it's like. And yet it says here that we have a new and a living way that we can all enter in. Now the imagery here, if you're unfamiliar, is the Day of Atonement. That's what the author is writing about. There were seven Levitical feasts. These were biblical feasts. God said, these are my feasts in Leviticus 23. Now, God didn't care what Israel celebrated. They could put anything on their calendar, but God said, you're going to celebrate these seven because these will give you a sense of where history is going. To the Jewish person, time was linear. It was moving somewhere, the consummation of the ages, as Scripture would talk about. And so these seven were, first of all, holy days. They were set apart by God for two reasons. One, he wanted his people to remember all that he had done. So at Passover, he wanted them to remember how their forefathers came out of Egypt. They were slaves, and through a great and mighty hand, God had delivered them. They wanted them to look back, because in so many ways, we, we were delivered from Egypt, we are being delivered from Egypt. Even right now, God is still taking a lot of the world out of us, and one day we will make our grand exodus into heaven. We will be released from the things of this world. So it was set apart so they would remember all God had done and then all he was about to do. Chapter 10 here, verse 1 said, all, the, all these things about the tabernacle were shadows. They were copies of the true that was coming one day. And of course, we know that's in Christ. So they were holy days. They were also holidays. A lot of people think that God's not in the celebration. He's the author of celebration. Jesus turned the water into wine. Uh, Jesus wanted people to rejoice. You read about these festivals in extra-biblical literature, and these people would stay for weeks and sometimes months, and they would celebrate with family and friends, and there would be feasting, etc. Now, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was a very solemn holy day. There was very little celebration. And the holiday centered on two individuals, one, the high priest, which I've mentioned, and the second instrument, which you may have heard of, is the Azazel, or the scapegoat. Let's talk about the high priest first. The high priest would go into the most holy place, but there was about two weeks of preparation before he could enter in. The preparation was so meticulous, the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders, elders of Israel, would make sure that everything was done the way God had described. There were ceremonial washings. There were certain clothes he had to wear. There were priestly functions. Everything had to be ordered in the tabernacle. The priestly robes that he would wear that had jewels and such, he had to change them. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, put on fine linen, white fine linen. And so all this stuff is going on, very meticulous for the high priest because he was the focal point of what God was about to do. Now, the Azazel was the scapegoat. And what they would do is they would select two goats of the same stature, same cost, put them side by side. They would face the temple with their backs to the congregation. The high priest would put his hand in an urn and he would draw a lot. And one lot would signal which goat was the Azazel. He would take a scarlet thread, tie it around his horn, and then the Azazel would face the congregation, very important, and then they would release him and he would run outside of the city and it was a sign that their sins were cast away. 
The other goat was unto Jehovah. The high priest would take him, take him to the brazen altar, slice his throat, take the blood in a pan, and then bring it beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, put it on the mercy seat, and God would atone for the sins of the nation. When the high priest laid his hands on the Azazel, he would confess the sins of the nation, the sins of the priests. It would be transferred to them, and then God would absolve all of Israel. Now, think of the imagery here. Jesus was the scapegoat. He's our Azazel. He faced the congregation. Remember Pilate, when he asked them to choose, he said, behold the man. And then he hung on the cross, and it said, king of the Jews. And Jesus' blood was shed for us. And when he died, it says the veil was torn top to bottom. That was very important. It doesn't say the veil was taken down. It doesn't say it came from bottom to top. It came from top to bottom. Why? Because in Jewish tradition, when someone would commit blasphemy or when a member of your family would die, the elder of the family, usually the dad or the oldest son, would take his garment and rip it top to bottom. When Jesus died and said it was finished, God laid on him the sin of the world. God literally ripped his garment because his son had died. The veil was torn in two, top to bottom, and that system, the copy, was done away with. The high priests were weak and fallen men like you and me. No blood of bulls and goats could ever atone for our sin. We needed a new and living way. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to God. So here's our application. We have a new and a living way where you and I, verse 22, can draw near to God. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to draw near to God? I mean, didn't David draw near to God? Didn't many Old Testament saints draw near to God? Didn't they pray and cry out, yes? But again, he's using that imagery that we can actually, we can actually get into the throne room of God, if that makes any sense. We, we now have access where there never was access. We now have intimacy where there never was intimacy, at least the way we're looking at And there's no fear anymore. There's no fear. The high priest had bells around his garment because if they didn't hear the bells, they would think he had died in God's presence and they would yank him out. You and I unabatedly can draw near to God. John Piper spent his entire ministry, almost 50 years, at Bethlehem Church trying to teach his congregation and really the world about what he called Christian hedonism, that we can find our delight in God. He has a book out called God is the Gospel. And what he's trying to hammer home is for you and and me and for those who follow Christ, you know, we got in this because of the person of Christ. Now there's another gospel out there that means come to Christ and God will do things for you. You have a great marriage, you have a great business, you know, God will kind of be your great genie in the sky. Yes, God gives gifts, but God is the Gospel. And we all got into this so we could draw near to God. John Piper says today, as in every generation, it is stunning to watch the shift away from God as the all-satisfying gift of God's love. It is stunning how seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the gospel. But the Bible teaches that the best and final gift of God's love is the enjoyment of God and his beauty. He quotes Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord and I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Piper said the best and final gift of the gospel is that we gain Christ. 
He quotes Paul, I count everything lost, I count everything as rubbish that I might know the excellency, the all-encompassing gift of God's love through the gospel. Piper said, in place of this, we have turned the love of God and the gospel of Christ into a divine endorsement of our delight in many lesser things, especially the delight in our being made much of. The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Do you feel more love because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to make much of him forever? Wow. Wow. Now, one of the beautiful things that return to the church is we are the apple of God's eye. For too long, we were beaten down that, you know, you come in the church, the chandelier is going to fall on you, God's going to judge you. So we needed to hear about God's love. We needed to hear that God is my friend and he's my savior. But are we making much of him? Are we living to pursue him? That's what Piper's talking about. And then he gives an illustration. Just bear with me a little longer. He said, our fatal error is believing that wanting to be happy means wanting to be made much of. It feels so good to be affirmed. But the good feeling may be rooted in worth of self, not the worth of God. This path to happiness, Piper believes, is an illusion. And there are clues. There are clues in every human heart, even before conversion to Christ. One of those clues is that one goes to the Grand Canyon or to the Alps to increase his self-esteem. No one does that. That is not what happens in front of massive depths and majestic heights. But we go there and we go for joy. How can that be if being made much of is the center of our health and happiness? The answer is that it is not the center. In wonderful moments of illumination, there is a witness in our hearts. Soul health and great happiness come not from beholding a great self, but a great splendor. Man, beholding the glory of God. And the writer of Hebrews says that's what God has given you, the ability to enter into his presence and draw near to God. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to draw near to God? Well, it's certainly not flipping through verses and thinking, God, talk to me. It's certainly not devotional life with a cup of coffee. It can be all or some of that. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be richer and more rewarding. So to tell you what it means to draw near to God, I have to tell you a little bit about the God you're drawing near to. The summation of the Hebraic scriptures, the prophets, and all who follow God is that God longs to be pursued. If I figured out anything in 35 years, God's not going to write my name in the clouds, okay? I know everybody wants that. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I've heard stories of somebody wanting it to snow and it snowed, and that's wonderful, and God's done things like that for me. But at the end of the day, when the skeptic says, if there is a God, he'll write your name in the clouds, God would never stoop to those things. Those are all things of men. The God that you and I are following has always been a God that longs to have been pursued. Jeremiah writes this. He says, when you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. Jeremiah ministered for 50 years, and he learned about the God who hides. Jesus said, if you seek, you'll find. If you ask, it'll be given. If you knock, it'll be open. The grammar there is you have to keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. Theologians, they have fancy terms for everything. They call this the hiddenness of God. And there's a lot of scriptures that support it, especially the Psalms. 
Psalm 10 says, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44, Psalms gets a little angry. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? And Isaiah sums it up in chapter 45, 15, when he says, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Now these are heavy hitters. This is Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. The great men of faith are saying, God must be pursued. And now you and I have this living way where we can draw near. Now, let me give you an illustration. And the illustration I'm gonna give you is somewhat weird because I'm neither. I'm gonna give you an illustration from fishing and hunting, and I don't do either. If you invite me out to fish, I'll go. If you invite me out to hunt, I'll go. I'm not gonna shoot anything, but I'll go, okay? So fishermen and hunters are strange. One time I was checking out at Barnes & Noble, and there was a, a book on fishing and a book on hunting and really all these hobbies, and it was like fishing was sweating, swatting, and all these bad things that happen while you're fishing so you can catch fish, right? A fisherman goes out. A hunter goes out. A hunter spends all day in the woods, sits in a blind, walks around to see one or two deer and may come home with nothing. Fisherman goes out into the ocean. He doesn't know what's coming up. Nothing may come up. And they usually say, well, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at work, right? So it's all worth it. No fisherman would ever want to go out where the fish were just jumping into the boat, right? Or deer were running around like a petting zoo, right? You know, it's the art of the hunt. It's the art of fishing that we're longing for. Now, here's something I do understand. I've been on safari a couple times in Kenya. Whenever we do a mission trip there, uh, not every time, but most times we'll take people out to the Maasai Mara. And there's something overwhelming about seeing the Serengeti for the first time. It's one of the most majestic experiences on the planet. And what surprises you when you go out in the safari, because you watch National Geographic all your life, is you drive for the first 20 minutes and don't see anything. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, look, there's a gazelle over there. And everybody's like, oh, get the cameras out, look, a gazelle. And you're thinking, well, wait a second, I've seen gazelles in zoos all my life. This, this isn't really that big of a deal. And then there's a zebra. And then you move on. And what you're looking for are the big five, right? You're looking for lions and hippos and Cape buffalo and cheetahs. And you go out on these game drives, six o'clock in the morning, six at night, the next day, and game drive after game drive, and finally you see hippos. And they're in this pool of water, and it's like, wow, this is unbelievable, and you can hear them snorting and all. But then there comes that moment, look up on the screen, this is from my iPhone, a male lion. I have seen a male lion every time on safari. Never early, usually the last game drive, and I'm talking between me and that front row, was that male lion, and you are just in awe. Now, here's what happens. Once you see that lion, on your drive back, guess what you're seeing? Elephants, giraffes, zebras. You know what people are doing now? Looking at their iPhone, falling asleep. Some people sit by the pool, they don't even come out to the next game drive. That's the way God is, right? If God wrote your name in the sky every day, it would get old, it really would. He's the God who longs to be pursued. That's where the intimacy comes in. That's where the enjoyment comes in. Yes, God speaks to us every day. Yes, we can read the word. But there is something about deep calling out to deep in this new and living way where we pursue God that makes it just amazing. In a few weeks, we're going to start Hebrews 11. And we're going to look at the great men and women of faith. 
Hebrews 11 starts out by saying, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Get this, the evidence of what we cannot see. Skeptics tell us that scientifically they understand everything, but that believers are always looking at faith. Well, wait a second, I just quoted you that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and we have evidence of what we can't see. Faith and evidence in one, one sentence. Now, here's what they're not telling you. They have to believe by faith everything they say. So you walk into a room and someone says, oh, you go to church and all. I don't believe in God because I don't think anyone can know God. Well, that takes faith to make that sentence or to make that statement. Why? Because to say there is no God takes a lot of faith because maybe there's people that know God. And the only way you can know there is no God is to believe by faith because it can't be proven. See, every cliche that a person says, they still say it by faith. They just don't know it. The Bible says that he who comes to God must come to him in faith and believe that he is and a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. God longs to be pursued. God longs for us to come to him by faith. Last Sunday, I left church here with my wife to go to Coastal's baptism. Uh, There were 81 people baptized, about 800 of us on the beach. It was just a sight to behold. And we were there because my wife's cousin, who she's prayed for for 35 years, got baptized with her husband. I met her brother who went to Palmer Seminary right down the street here. We talked for about an hour. He's the spiritual formation director at his church. And we started talking about Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, a lot of the men who write from the contemplative stream of drawing near to God and some of the ancient practices of the monastics. And he lamented as a spiritual director, he said, Bob, I think half the people in our congregations in evangelical born-again Christianity have never experienced the presence of God, have never experienced God's presence. And I would agree. We've read the Bible. We may have entered into some spiritual disciplines. But there is something about entering into God's presence that is just a delight. And it doesn't happen all the time. There's a lot of mundane we have to work through. Now, sometimes God is hidden because of our sin. Moses told Israel, if you sin and you follow other gods, the heavens will become like brass. For 400 years, from Malachi to Matthew, there was no word of God. God was silent because this nation sinned. But more often than not, God is hidden for our growing. Because I know in my life, when God hides, I come to the end of myself. I begin to see the triviality of the things I do, the things I spend my money on. I see my own inadequacies. I see why I came to him in the first place. I begin to enjoy him more. I begin to seek him more. I understand there's a wall I gotta crash through. I think God hides from my learning and growing, and I think he hides in some ways So the depth of my spirit would call out to him, to long for him, to remember there's nothing of this world that's ever gonna fill me. So the writer here in application says that you and me personally can draw near to God through a new and a living way. Now, that sounds wonderful to Americans, doesn't it? Because we're the Marlboro men, right? We're gonna do it all alone, right? Yeah, I'm gonna draw near to God, just me and God on a beach alone, right? No. Look at verse 24. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another even much more as we see the day approaching. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying here? That we have access to God. That's wonderful, it's beautiful. Intimacy with God in my life will look different than your life, just like my marriage will look different than your marriage. But remember, the context here is the congregation, the Azazel, looking out at the congregation, the, the tabernacle where people would gather. There's something rich about entering into God's presence alone, and there's something about entering God's presence together, and we need both. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it best. He said, we need a day with God and a day with each other. It's wonderful being with each other, and just when that gets old, we need a day with God, and just when that gets lonely, we need a day with each other. Because here's what God has done. He's made us now a worshiping community. We don't bring sacrifices anymore. No one walked in here with a sheep or a goat today. We are living sacrifices, and what we just did, we sang, we brought the sacrifice of praise. You know why it's a sacrifice? Because maybe you didn't want to do it. Maybe you didn't want to come here this morning. Maybe you didn't want to give, pray, or do anything we're doing today, but we bring the sacrifice of praise. And as the new community, we do it together. The church, the new community, is the greatest institution on the planet. It's the only place I've ever found where you can love and be loved, serve and be served, know and be known, give and receive. And you hang around long enough, you'll be part of all of that. We're an organism. It can't be programmed. The wonderful things that happen here that I usually find out months later, like people help people out with monetarily or with jobs or went to funerals or traveled together, can never be programmed. We would lose our minds. But it organically happens through the power of the Spirit in our fellowship and our communion with one another. When the church is working right, it's one of the most beautiful places on the earth. When it's not working right, it's still a beautiful place. It's just a little messy and we gotta work through it. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered, I'm right in the midst of them. When two people are trying to work something out, he's right there, just as much as he's right here as the Holy Spirit is teaching. And so the writer says, as much as we have this access to God, don't run home and just pray on your own, but let's gather together. Don't forsake this assembling. In fact, we should be gathering more as we see the day approaching. Now, I got off on a little tangent this week. I think I'm going to write an essay on this called, Is Church Good for You? And I went out to all secular sources. Uh, what grabbed me was a quote I read in a book by an MIT economist. He said, regular church attenders commit fewer crimes, are in better health, live longer, make more money, drop out of school less frequently, and finish college more frequently than non-church growers. I thought, that's interesting. Then I found this, National Bureau of Economic Research. Doubling the rate of religious attendance would raise your household income 10%, decrease welfare participation 16%, the odds of you going, being divorced go down. The odds of you being married go way up. And then the New York Times, you believe this? The most liberal paper in the country had an article called The Benefits of Church and Religious Gatherings. Boost your immune system. 
decreases blood pressure, adds two to five years to your life, increases recovery from illness, and makes you happier. What's the conclusion of all that? Go and eat a burger and a hot dog on the 4th of July and don't worry about it. Because by coming here, man, you're going to be in great health. Everybody's trying to live longer. Everybody's, it's unbelievable. There was a study done of a group of people that lived in North Jersey. These people had come from Russia and they were living well beyond the people that surrounded them, many of them well into their 80s. So of course, the first thing they thought is, it's their diet, right? So they went and researched their diet and found out their diet was horrible. They came from Russia, they were eating high in fatty foods. And then they said, okay, it must be in their genes. So they researched their genes, and that wasn't the answer. And they went down, and you know what their final conclusion was? Strong community. These people care for one another. They watch each other's kids. They, they live life together. There are wonderful byproducts God has given you and me, and we don't even know it's good for us. We really don't. And the tragedy is in our American lifestyle, we're prone to do it on our own, and no one can. You know, I am so thankful I got saved with my wife, who was my girlfriend, because I don't know what would have happened to me. And I don't know what would happen to me without friends on this journey. We have this joy of sitting with God alone, the joy of coming together and doing what we're doing today and the functions that we have. I love that scene in Revelation where the 24 elders are around the throne of God. And if you don't know anything about Revelation, the 24 elders represent the raptured church, the universal church around the throne of God. It's gonna be one of the most amazing scenes you've ever been a part of. And everyone is there and they're singing what it says is a new song, how you have redeemed us by your blood from every kindred, from every tribe, every nation. And guess what they're wearing? Fine linen like the priests. And they're around the throne of God, no more seeing through a glass dimly. Now they're seeing face to face. And I thought, God, that is so cool that for the ages we're still going to gather and there's still going to be something about being in a crowd. And so I so appreciate the church. Uh, I was reading Spurgeon. And if you know Charles Spurgeon, he preached in the 1800s. His church, listen to this, sat 6,000 people in the 1800s. He was a prodigy. He's the prince of preachers. And yet, Spurgeon dealt with some of the things we deal with today. You think, okay, those guys had a different set of problems. It's all the same problems, right? So Spurgeon had a conundrum because they start printing his sermons in the London Times uh, Monday or Tuesday, and guess what happened? There was a fear that people would stop coming to church. Spurgeon wrote, there are some folks who think it's better to sit home and read a sermon than to actually come and hear one. Now, can you imagine if you knew anything about podcasts or TV or what was coming down the pike? I've told the story a lot, so bear with me, how Spurgeon battled depression. In fact, we have a book in the bookstore about his battle with depression. And one time he was so depressed, he was ready to quit, he went back to his home where he was raised and he wanted to walk the old paths. And so it was Sunday and he thought, I'll go to my old church. And he went to his old church and sat in the back row and the preacher was preaching and he could feel skin coming on his bones again. He could feel life coming to his flesh. And by the end of the sermon, he said, I'm ready to go back to London. I'm ready to start preaching again. I'm ready to start leading my congregation. And he went up and he introduced himself to the minister and thanked him. And the minister said, I have a confession to make. 
your sermons are printed in the London Times and somebody gave me your sermon and I didn't have a lot of preparation this week, so I preached your sermon this week. <laughs> so Spurgeon actually revived himself by himself by going to church that day. Guys, we have this beautiful gift. David said, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We see a lot during the week, a lot of things going on in this world, contrary to the love of God and what we believe. But David said, when I walked in the house of God, everything made sense. As all the synapses and everything came together and I considered the wicked in their end and I understood where life is going and what God has done. And my challenge today is whatever stream you take is to draw near to God. Because God has given you wonderful access through the person of Jesus Christ. And there is a God who loves you and he longs to be pursued. And I think if you pursue God, you'll have those God moments. I think you'll experience his presence. I think his presence or that word is way overused. Uh, today, if you're a millennial, his presence means you make your annual trip to Bethel or IHOP or somewhere. Older people have their pilgrimages. I have mine. There's conferences I like to go to. We all like to go to places where God is doing great things. But at the end of the day, the end of the day, there is a group of people we're living life with. We were meant for one another. And we were meant for connection with this God. And the Bible says you can't say you love God who you can't see and not love your neighbor who you can see. And it all goes together. And Jesus made a way through the veil, his body that was torn. And I'm not really a religious person per se. I know a lot of people like to look at old cathedrals and they walk in the old churches and they feel the presence of God. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I know all the architecture was designed that way from that era. All the stained glass was to make you feel a certain way. And, and I know the church, when it finally could build buildings, they said, what can we build? And they said, well, let's really honor God by building the best building. So they went to the Basilica, which was a government building. And they said, let's make it look like this. And so that's what they built. And we look back and we think, oh no, that's a church. And really what we're looking at is a government building from a long, long time ago. And then you come here and you say, this doesn't look like church, which means it doesn't look like a government building from long, long ago. Because <laughs> what in the world does church look like? I know what church looks like. A group of people that gather and worship God and then they leave. And while we're here, this is a holy place. The minute we leave, this is just an auditorium. Last week at that baptism, about 800 of us on the beach, was majestic. My wife and I went back to the same beach yesterday, uh, the next day just to chill, and it was like the day after Christmas. No one there. It was poof, gone. The only thing that made it holy was we had all gathered. And one day, face to face, it's gonna be beautiful. So let's all stand. And we're going to sing this song from the inside out. And uh, let's make it our prayer as we leave.